everybody, and uh, welcome to the show. I'm Jerry. I'm Ben. I'm John. And uh, this is a little podcast we're starting uh, because we like games, and uh, we like to talk about all sorts of them. So uh, we're mostly going to cover tabletop games in general, video games, board games, maybe war games. We, we all have this obsession with uh, Warhammer, yet none of us play it anymore because it costs money. Um, so that's kind of what you guys can expect. We might deviate into pop culture every now and then, movies, music, media, whatever, but it'll it'll mostly be game-centric. Um, but I think I think that being said, we can just uh, we can jump right in. And uh, so one of the one of the things I want to talk about tonight, you guys, is um, you know the the hardbacks that that Wizards has put out, uh, Curse of Strahd. Uh, ben, I know you're are, you're still running Curse of Strahd, right? Yeah, we still got a game going on uh, about midway through at this point. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, there's Curse of Strahd, there's Storm King's Thunder, um, there's uh, Princes of the Apocalypse, there was Horde of the Dragon Queen. And I think Horde of the Dragon Queen kind of, it, it was a little more introductory, not so huge in spanning. But from what I can tell, uh, you you're are you in a Princes of the Apocalypse game? Yeah, we've got a uh, Prince of the Apocalypse game running too. That my and how long have you, runs. how how long you've been playing in it? Uh, about twice as long as we've been playing the Curse of Strahd game, and we're not even close to finished with that one. Okay. So yeah, so I guess one of the things I want to talk about is like, what do you guys what do you guys think about these big huge setting books? So you know these big huge paper or not paperbacks but hardbacks that are literally hundreds of pages that have these huge grandiose sweeping adventures that could take i mean depending on how often you get together with an rpg group literal years to complete like weigh in on that what do you guys i mean are you for them you against them pros cons so generally i'm for setting books um prince's the apocalypse is a little bit long even for me for a book uh but I love the Curse of Strahd one with all the background info that it has, and I can just absorb everything that is in going on in Barovia at that point. Yeah, I could see that. John, what about you? What, what, where do you fall here? Like I like uh, Raven, uh, Ravenloft, so like being able to get more information about Barovia, and uh, I, I just, I mean, so far, like I haven't been able to actually get a game uh, started. But from what I read, I really like the information that they provide in the hardback. Okay. Yeah, so, like, I guess, like, I don't know where I stand because I don't, this is sacrilege, but I don't, I don't own the new Curse of Strahd. Um, primarily because just obsession with Demon Lord and, and fell out of D&D for a while. But, um, you know, what I really like in Demon Lord and also, I mean, not to just super plug Demon Lord, you know, like old D and D adventures where you just, you just had an adventure module and it was maybe you know sixteen to thirty two pages, and it was kind of self contained and you could drop it in anywhere if you had an ongoing campaign. Like, I like that because it, basically because I'm lazy, right? It comes down to I'm a super lazy GM because I'm usually preparing for my game the day of or like hours before it happens. Um, and I mean, hours before it happens, it doesn't matter how short the book is. I'm not going to be prepared unless it's, unless it's Demon Lord and it's like a six page thing. But as far as D and D goes, you know, I, I kind of miss those old modules, like the old 
you know, second second edition where there was just a ton of them, you know, and I don't know, some of it was some of it was crap, but I'm a I'm I'm a fan of the more digestible stuff. Like, how do you guys feel about those? Um, so I I do like I do the same thing when I run a game is I'll just take adventures from somewhere else and just basically rehash them for whatever I'm running. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about these big campaign books is that you get a sense of continuity that you don't necessarily get with just random adventures that you're picking up. I could I could see that. But I mean don't you feel like do you feel like it's a huge investment like you know you know that you're going to run Curse of Stride for your players so you're doing it right now. Did you read the the whole book up front? Uh no, no I did not. I definitely read certain parts. The nice thing about the way they did Strahd was that they sectioned it out to different areas have different levels. So, but without really seeding adventures, there are adventures there, mm-hmm. but you can say like they're level five. I can come up with a reason for them to go to uh, Babala Saga's hut if they need to go there. Um, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, whereas Princes of the Apocalypse, it's a very and uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen too. I think are very more linear. much more linear than that. The nice thing about Princes of the Apocalypse is that it's super sandboxy. Actually. You can go into areas and get wrecked if you decide to go that way. <laughs> but I, uh, Dragon Queen was pretty much like, here's A, here's B, here's C, just follow it along. Um, so what you're saying is like Princes of the Apocalypse is like old school EverQuest? Where you just <laughs> wander into a zone and it's like, everyone here is going to kill you. Pretty much, yeah. I never played EverQuest, but yeah, there's definitely that feeling of, oh, we're level one and we ran into... Uh, an undead umber hulk or whatever and it's just gonna wreck your face <laughs> castle miss more I, <laughs> I, I never actually played i played everquest for like a minute john you played a bunch of everquest didn't you yeah and that was one of the learning things that you learned really quick where you were exploring and like for example playing and uh playing in a, a troll and then wandering off into like guck for example and just <laughs> knowing that you're not supposed to be there and like the the uh like the, the frogalocks the frog people that live there um you walked in there and they greeted you with this loud punching crunching sound that made you know that you just got wrecked and so you're like well <laughs> i guess i'm not supposed to be there yet and i guess i have to go kill rats or whatever or bats <laughs> rats or bats or wolves so <laughs> we'll save that for a, we'll save that for a question. Well, we're we're gonna make that the Twitter question uh, for the show. We're gonna ask everybody what's the most cliche low level RPG monster. Don't don't say yours yet. We'll save it for later. But all right. Uh, so like okay, here here's another thing about setting books. How do you guys feel about you know how do you guys feel about a book where um, there is no adventures in it right it's just like a gazetteer it's just like here's maps of the areas here's key locations here's cities here's npcs and maybe even like here's uh you know here's some murmurs of what's going on or here's some political intrigue or there's a war like some like background information necessarily but or um, per se but not necessarily like 
here's an actual laid out adventure. Like start the characters here, have them talk to this person and then have them go here or maybe go here. But where it's just kind of like presented to you in this open manner, like fourth edition had uh, Vorukoth and hammer fast, I think. And they were both these like modules that came with all this information, but there wasn't, I don't think there was an actual adventure in them. I don't remember cause it's been a while, but I don't know. What do you what do you guys think? Like, if you had to pick, you know, bite-sized adventures, a giant spanning campaign book with adventures included in it, or just kind of like a resource for a locale and people and places and things, which one, like based on your GMing style, would you think is the most useful to you? Um, just having like blank maps uh, can be helpful for encounters. I feel like, but not a larger campaign. Um, what I really miss are the full setting books that sort of gave you a grand overview of the world that you were in. So like, uh, fourth edition, dark sun book or the box sets from second edition, that sort of thing. It didn't really give you like, it would give you like city maps, but not like locale maps. I really do like the curse of Strahd book. Um, it sort of gives you that middle ground of here's a setting, here's everything that's going on, some background info. Um, and if you want to just sit there and absorb it all, you can. Okay. What about you, John? And John, I know you don't have like a super ton of experience GMing, but I mean, just from like, you know, your own personal standpoint, if you were going to jump in, what, what do you think would be the most useful to you? Like if I knew more about, uh, like the setting, I would probably just want to go with something like like the gazetteer and just have something more about who is currently the king of these regions or um, what uh, monster or like what like say if like there's like in this time frame like there's more dragons or that there's a big mm-hmm. issue with uh, necromancy and that there's a rise of undead army, but for me recently getting into D&D like back in 2008 what I always went for was something that had a little bit a little bit of everything like um, if I could have something where it's like it gave you an idea of what the deities were and what uh, the races how the races uh, acted toward each other and then what events and then maybe um, story hooks or even some handouts I would go towards something like that instead of going in blindly and being uh, like, well, you know, I read a little bit about this, but then you have players who kind of know that, like, what happened previously in, like, the previous uh, editions, and they're like, yeah. so wh- what happened to this event? And you're kind of, like, left there going, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened with that. So I would go with something that has a little bit of everything or more, um, like, more history, uh, and at the in the in the back of it, have like a little adventure to get people. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I I really feel like the player's handbook or the the dungeon master's guide should come with a little, like uh, what was this the starter box the lost the lost minds of Fandelver that they did and that starter yeah. box for fifth edition. That uh-huh. was a really good adventure. Like, it was really well done. I think it. I don't know. I would like to see more of that. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, I didn't bring up this topic so that I could rally against the the hardback books, but I would really like to see more more stuff like like that. 
kind of like what John was just talking about. But that's just because I see a really big, thick hardback book, and I'm like, man, that's an investment that I don't, I don't have financially or time. Yeah, I mean, so the the hardback adventures are definitely built for groups that play every week or every other week and play that one game constant, constantly yeah. until they're done. Um, yeah. I haven't. The other... I don't know if I I played part of the Lost Minds of Feldover, but I think it was during the beta test. Mm-hmm. So so a lot probably changed for it. Yeah. The, the another thing, last thing before we move on. You know, like John was talking about, some of those settings, they come with so much canon and, and backstory to them where you if you're playing the game with people who, say, like have uh, a lot of investment in that setting and you don't, for example, I think Forgotten Realms is is okay. Like, it's 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 not my favorite thing, but having read Erin uh, Evans's novels, like, I, I really like her characters, and so I like, you know, like, I like the City of Waterdeep and stuff. I'm not, I haven't read any of the Driss novels. I'm not, that's not really my thing, but, like, my wife has read a shitload of Forgotten Realms novels, and I feel like if somebody was like, oh, hey, run this Forgotten Realms campaign, and I had people who'd actually, like, they know a lot about that world, I would just feel like I would never do it justice where, you know, a lot of people be like, oh, you know, take it and make it your own, make it yours, whatever, it doesn't matter. But then to some people it will matter, and then I wouldn't want to do an adventure and then have somebody be like, uh, actually, the Harpers would never do that. And be like, well, fucking, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? So I try and avoid stuff like that. And that's what I kind so of... Re- n- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say, so the nice thing about the campaign books, like from older editions, the setting books, is like, this is the book that I'm reading we're just going to use this information and then everyone has a common launching point to work from both players and GMs. Um, So like I know nothing about forgotten realms and often miss out on a lot of the cues that are in the adventures. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't know if it really affects my play style at that point. It's usually just like, I don't know what that guy in the red robes talking about. It doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. What were you going to say, John? And that's actually what I ran into when I first started running D&D is um, I had to I had a player who really liked Forgotten Realms and when I was looking at um, like I believe it was like the first module um, Shadow on the uh, uh, Keep, Keep on the Shadowfell yeah, Keep on the Shadowfell um, there was a conversion that you could convert it over to take place in like the Forgotten Realms, and the player was just like, "So is this taking place in Forgotten Realms, or where is this taking place?" And and of course, I'm only familiar with Forgotten Realms from playing Baldur's Gate and uh, so right. the CRPGs, and so I was like, "Well, it can. I believe there's a conversion for it," and so I did that. And of course, then I got a lot of questions during it. So, so if this village is here, where is so and so? Where where is this uh, kingdom at? And so I had to kind of be like, um, it is. So it did catch me off guard because I <laughs> I myself have not read any Forgotten Realms uh, like books that like Ed or anyone else has written. I haven't read the Drist or anything like that, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it kind of broadsides you, especially if you don't know 
what you're going into. But for the, I did my best with what I had, and I tried to make it work. So, I mean, in the end, they all had fun in it, and I didn't get, uh, you know, he didn't get too like. Um, technically, that's not what really happened in this age. <laughs> duh, 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 duh. You know, he didn't go into that, but. Uh, well, I mean that that's good as long as everybody has fun. But it's definitely, I think it's a, a little it's a little barrier to entry for some people, especially if you're just getting into tabletop RPGs, and then you're like, oh, there's this world of history behind this thing. But, anyways, yeah. so I, like I, we could, I sh- go ahead. I also, ahead, I also wanted to add that. Um, so, like some settings, like Forgotten Realms, they have so much going on that, like John's problem, like or your problem with uh, your wife that there's they have so much more background info and it's just impossible to keep up with it because there's years of data with it but yeah and there's like multiple timelines too you know there's before the spell plague after yeah. the spell plague and it's you know it's like it's it's like comic books for me like I'm not a comic book guy and I'm really intimidated by the thought of trying to get into comic books because there's so many different eras of like artists and writers and storylines and offshoots and who's dead and who came back to life and all that other stuff. I'm just like, uh, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Right. And the- but I mean, if it's a setting that you get really into also, you can, you're, you're more willing to sit down and just absorb more information as you that's go true. along. That's true. And see, when I was starting in D&D, what I was looking into, what my what caught my focus was something like Ravenloft. And so I was like, oh, but this was, the books that I found were all in like 3, 3.0, I believe. I think it was the, the ones that uh, Sword and Sorcery did. And yeah, I have that. I, I have the Sword and Sorcery Ravenloft campaign setting sitting on my desk right now. I'm using it to prop a monitor up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but see, that's what I found. Like, oh man, this would be really cool. But then when you have a player who's like, I never heard of Ravenloft, but Forgotten Realms would be really cool to do. And then there was something where he had to bring up the uh, spell plague, and he goes, "What's that?" You know, and it's like, I, you know, I'll get back to you on that one. So you had to do research on it, and it's like, I'll, t- I'll look that up, and I'll get back to you on that type of thing. But, yeah, yeah. I, the, it boils down to I don't feel like being a GM should ever feel like homework too much yeah well i mean so there's another problem with a setting like forgotten realms that's so big is that people didn't pay attention to the fourth edition one because they kept playing third edition or second edition so they missed out on a lot of the story what's going on with like the spell plague or whatever yeah but yeah so i think i think that was a good first topic i think we could explore this more uh, on another episode um but let's let's jump into our next one for now and and it's related so our next one is and, and this is exchange uh that i that i saw on twitter and i participated in uh with uh tom lommel the dungeon bastard he he was talking about uh kind of like keeping momentum during combat and tabletop games and and he was basically talking about you know some kind of mechanic that you could use in D D where in combat, when a player misses, they would be given, uh, awarded some sort of token or bonus or some sort of something that accumulates so that eventually um, you could use that to influence uh, the fight or the game in some way. And so, you know, I responded back because immediately I was like, oh, well, you know, shit happens. Like sometimes, whatever, people miss and they miss repeatedly. 
Um, and he was like, yeah, but you know, is that fun for you or your group? You know, like you wait 10 minutes to take your turn, you roll the dice and then, you know, you, you, you swing and you miss, and then you got to wait another 10 minutes to come back and see if, you know, you can do anything cool. And I immediately had to switch my brain back over to D and D because like in demon Lord, the game goes so fast and I just don't see things ha like that happen in demon Lord. Like I did when we played D and D a lot. Um, not that it doesn't. But it's just it just goes so much quicker. But in in D and D, oh, it's my cat ruining things. Um, in in D and D, there's you know it does it kind of takes a lot of time depending on how many people you're playing with and how new some of the other people are. People take slower turns, and I think intrinsically, combat in D and D takes longer than it does in Demon Lord. Not necessarily super long like it used to in Fourth Edition, but you know, I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, you know, he's right. Like, from a player perspective, it does suck, even if you don't wait ten minutes. If you wait five or three, and you're like, all right, I'm going to swing again, and then you roll the dice, and you, you know, you roll a four again or whatever, and you're like, all right, cool, I guess I'll, you know, kill some time until it's my turn again. People aren't as invested, right? Like, if you, you know, you want to hit the monster, you want to do the cool thing, and then when your character fails, even if you're the best role player around, you're, you, you eventually, you're going to get a little demoralized about it. So... Like, at first, I was like, oh, is this, like, you know, everybody gets a participation ribbon special snowflake bullshit for RPGs? But the more I thought about it, the more I, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. And, and Ben, you ran um, you ran the 2D20 system for us, and it was a Star Trek game, and it had had a mechanic like that where... Can you explain it? Because I don't remember it completely, but I just I remember really liking it. Yeah, so basically the mechanic there's two mechanics in 2D20. Um, there's uh, momentum and threat. So momentum says someone in your group's doing really well. They can keep that good momentum going mm. by uh, on your turn you can spend m momentum to have a better chance of succeeding. Mm -hmm. And then so then there's also threat that says your group's not doing so great. But I'm going to give the GM threat to try to do better and build that momentum back up. So, but in, in return, the GM gets to say, well, my monsters are going to spend this threat just like you would spend momentum. Okay. And it's like, a, it's like a pool, right? So, like, the players accumulate momentum and it's available to everybody in the party. Correct. Yeah, there's there's two different types of momentum. There's... A, there's you. Only momentum you can spend immediately, so it's things like you make an attack and then you hit harder with that attack. You can spend the momentum you generate from making the attack to do that, mm -hmm. or you can save it for later so that uh, basically it's the idea that as you go along, like um, Conan's a good example of this, like you're fighting a pack of hyenas and like you kill one hyena spectacularly and you use the momentum from that attack to keep going to kill the other ones. I dig it. Uh, John, what, so, I mean, you've, you've played enough D&D. &D. Like, have you ever had a, a shit turn like that? Just a game where you, you can't, I mean, even, even if you're not a player, like even if you're a GM and your monsters are missing and it's just, it's just a giant whiff fest for however many minutes. And then eventually you're like, fuck it. You beat the monsters or whatever. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, um, like, and what I, what I would do is, like, if my, if my monsters miss, is, like, I would always describe, like, some kind of great 
big, huge miss to kind of keep it kind of entertaining for him. But yeah, deep down, you're kind of like, oh man, these stupid goblins can't hit for sure, man. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, but I'm um, like, I, you know, there's players where you see, like, there's, I had a player who would, that would happen. Like, you know, they'd roll and they'd get, you know, they wouldn't hit. And so it's like, and the guy's like, oh, okay. And then you can see, like, the investment in the game itself was losing, it was losing its steam because, you know, they're not, they're not hitting. And yeah. then you see, like, someone else at the other table, uh, like, across the table who's like, who just got done doing, like, this critical hit. And they're like, no, you know, everyone just kind of lights up. And you, you know, and I was watching the other player. You could kind of see him where he was kind of envious. You can kind of be like, "Oh man, I want to do something cool." But I think it would be right. be cool to see something like that in D and D. I mean, if you know, like, I guess either that or you know, people joke about, "Well, maybe you just need new dice." But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, gotta put I mean, your dice in timeout. Yeah, <laughs> go put them in the microwave. Yeah, dice shaming—that's that's a thing. I think that's funny that a majority of the gamers that I know don't believe in anything, but they they all believe that their dice are cursed. You know, they're like a complete and total disbelief in anything supernatural, anything of the sort. They're like, those fucking dice are unlucky. I'm like, no, they're they're just dice, like any other dice. But uh, that's why you have to put get the gamer science dice. <laughs> science is on your side. That's right. Gamer science dice also double as call traps because they're sharp as fuck. Um, oh, I believe it. Yeah, they are. Uh, so, so yeah, I think stuff like that is cool. And and you know, also to what John said, if you're a new player and you've never experienced tabletop RPGs, and somebody's like, yeah, you know, come play D and D. It's oh, it's so much fun. You get to cleave goblins and kick down doors and take people's loot and you know just have a good old time. And then their first experience of the game is like, uh, I don't know, I went and I rolled some dice and my character didn't do anything the whole time. I, I don't know if I want to do that again. Like, that sucks. Like John was talking about, like you can see it, you can see the flame just flicker out in people's eyes sometimes. You're like, well, we should probably stop soon because this this train is running out of coal. We're gonna we're gonna stop dead on the tracks. Let's end it before it gets bad. So I think some of the problem with that and this problem in general is that people tend to want to roll the dice more often than they need to. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm searching the room and I look underneath the bed for something and it's like all right roll a perception it's like if there's something underneath the bed you see what's underneath the bed like there's no need to roll anything for that yeah and i mean that comes down to when people you know a lot of games nowadays emphasize like don't don't make somebody roll for something unless there's a chance that they won't succeed at it i feel like back in third edition it was just it was like that like you're just rolling dice all the time for all sorts of things like you know, if you're looking for something really specific, like, oh, I want to check the underside of this drawer to see if there are any hidden compartments. Like, you know, do you do you make... I mean, you're being very specific. I would think if you looked at the bottom of the drawer and you had enough relative light around, you'd be able to see that. Why roll for it? Yeah, and so... <laughs> it's if they fail at that point, and even though there's a giant, like, uh, poison trap in your hidden drawer... And if you look at it, it's clearly there. It's just meant for people who just stick their hand underneath the desk or something. Right. That, then there's no need to roll, and the possibility of failure is removed for that situation. But, like, for combat, I can definitely see 
and this happened a lot in fourth for me is that since combat took so long for everyone Mm -hmm. it like if you fail on your turn then you're just like well i guess i'm just screwed at this point but at least fourth for a lot of the things they had on a miss something would still yeah do half damage or you still knock somebody prone or something yeah we could talk about that in another show too why fourth edition combat took so long we could we could make a, a full journalistic investigation yeah, it would take us the entire time to do it. That's true. Um, but uh, so the the last thing that I want to talk about on this is like another thing that he mentioned was mathing monsters to death, and uh, you know, part of me says that there's there's nothing wrong with that. If if you want to sit around and be like, uh, okay, I rolled, I hit, I did eight damage to the goblin. That's my turn. I mean, that's efficient and. Every moment of a game doesn't have to be, you know, gripping, because I think all show is no show. If you try and make everything epic and super great, then it's all going to blur together. But, um, you know, I think part of it, even even without that mechanic, is is like what John said. Like, if somebody misses, try and make it interesting. If somebody hits, try and make it interesting. Like, yeah, you can get one of those, uh, there's like a 12-sided die that has hit locations on it, just shows like a outline of a man and then there's little like explosion symbols on you know where they're hit roll one of those along with your attacks like sometimes it's kind of funny you know like oh you stab him in the foot for 18 damage and then you're like wow that's a lot of damage okay you cut their toes off like just crazy weird stuff like that it's good fun see what i would always do with that like if they finished a monster off i would always describe it like how it like the monster went down like how they they killed the goblin oh, yeah. or kobolds just so it kind of then you see him like oh yeah like you know fuck yeah I just took out that kobold yeah high five no high five fuck yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. or or you know have him describe it to you but a lot of times you know especially newer or more timid players they won't want to describe you know okay you finished the monster tell me how you finished it off they'll be like eh but if you make something up for them and then they like it eventually they might start making up their own stuff I mean that's that's what I've found yeah. So, a, a question about the term "mathing monsters to death." Since I mm-hmm. have not heard that before, is that just literally just keeping attacking until they die, or just trying to figure out information no, about the monster? I, I don't. I don't mean metagaming and trying to figure out what things armor classes are or anything. A, a mathing monster to death is basically, you know, oh, okay, uh, Ben, it's your turn, and then you just hear, uh, seventeen. Does that hit? Yep. Okay. Uh, seven damage. Okay, and then you just move on to the next person's turn, and that's the only interaction that happens between the DM and the players in exchanging of numbers. Okay, so how do you feel about encounters at that point, like in a dungeon that are just there to absorb resources in, with mathing the players to death at that point? Me, me personally, if I, if I just want to try and sap some of the players resources through you know eating up their hit points or setting them back time wise i like to use traps because they're more fun and less time consuming and they serve the same purpose and if the players are clever they'll get around them and it won't take rounds and rounds and rounds of combat i don't know if that's the right answer or if that's good gming or bad gming i just really like traps okay that that's an interesting way to do it because Definitely some of the newer modules still have rooms, uh, Gygaxian rooms that have seven kobolds that you're just supposed to defeat them all. Don't even get me started about fucking empty rooms full of 
five orcs that are guarding an empty box or a fucking crate full of horse dicks or something. It's just pointless loot, pointless monsters, empty room. Fucking hate that shit. But uh, let's not let's not uh, let's not get into that. Let's not be salty. Um, so last topic, um, and and we were talking about Conan. The Conan RPG uses the 2D20 system that has all these super cool momentum mechanics in it. But also, in the Conan world more recently, um, we all randomly... Well, I don't know if it's randomly or if it's out of anticipation for Exiles, but we all uh, started playing Age of Conan again. Uh, I even got Pixie to play, which was hilarious and awesome. And uh, Conan Exiles comes out in four days uh as of this recording and we're all super pumped about it right are you guys super pumped about it oh yeah yeah i'm pretty excited so for me so we don't have to talk about conan exiles for too long but i just want to say as a as a guy who has way too many fucking survival games in his steam library early access survival games where i was like that's going to be awesome and then i buy it and i'm immediately disappointed like the black death or rust or it's just so many games. I don't know why I'm a sucker for them. I don't know why I love picking up sticks and building huts and murdering naked people with rocks, but I do. <laughs> also, I love I love fantasy, sword and sorcery, obviously, and I love Skyrim, and like when I look at when I look at Conan Exiles, I see this culmination of all this shit that I get addicted to. So like I see the sword and sorcery aspect, like some of the screenshots remind me of Skyrim first person camera. You've got a sword in one hand, you're fighting people, you're blocking, but then it's also a survival game where you have to, you know, you have to, you know, punch trees probably to make basic tools to survive and craft things. And then eventually, you know, like it has this progression, like Ark had this crazy progression that I never even got through. Um, but like, I like I like that aspect and then I also like the PvP aspect. I love PvP games. They stress me out, but it's fun. I like the unpredictability. But apparently, Exiles is also going to have some kind of a PvE aspect. It's not. I don't think it's going to be like... I don't know. You guys have maybe read a little bit more than I have. Is it supposed to be like MMO style, you know, with like raids and, you know, groups and things like that? Or, or, or are they just kind of like monsters to kill? I think it's just like there's going to be uh, dungeons and old crypts and tomes that tombs that you can uh, explore, and you find like monsters that will drop certain resources that you can use to upgrade, or probably even that you'll require to summon your deity to come and aid you as you progress through the game. I, like, I can imagine like the to like summon Set, you would probably have to go into a dark uh, tomb and kill like maybe oh god that sounds so cool a baddie down there just to get like a certain like maybe a, a goblet or something to bring up and to give it to the priest while you summon uh, set to come and s yeah. swallow your enemies so I can see that I don't know about like raids that'd be kind of I don't think there's going to be anything like that, really. I really don't. I, I saw I was on some forums today, and somebody was like, "Oh, is there going to be end game content?" And I was like, "I don't think you, this game is what you think it's going to be." Yeah. So they also have for the PVE aspect is NPC camps that you need to attack those in order to gain like resources or thralls to build certain tiers of items, 
and they can, while you're offline, attack your settlement. So you need to have thralls protecting your camp right. from from the environment itself. So my question is, a lot of times these games, like in Rust, in, in Rust especially, in, in Rust if you play and you build up a base with your friends, it doesn't matter how much effort you put into it, unless you have a constant trickle rotation of people that you know that are in your clan that log on to make sure that your shit doesn't get raided and blown up, it will get raided and blown up, and then you'll have to start all over. And it's it's very frustrating. Like if you're trying to play the game on a on a long term basis, if you're just like I'm gonna log on tonight and uh, run around nude and try and kill people because that's fun, then go for it. But like if you're like yeah, we're gonna build a base and we're gonna do this, like just forget about it. It'll be gone in 24 hours, depending on the server that you're on. Even if it's a server that has the best of intentions, there's always hackers and there's always other shit like that. And I feel like in Exiles, maybe they're trying to remedy that by giving you these. NPCs that guard your, you know, they guard your base while you're gone, so you don't necessarily have to be online. But I immediately am thinking, like, who's going to learn how to exploit the AI of the guys in your base and get them to, like, go chase a rock or something while they run into your base and steal all your shit? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely going to happen, so... Yeah. Um, it, yeah, there's just no way around that. Like, if you're going to have a persistent uh, world things are going to happen. Uh, even like... So, like, I'm going to go back to World of Warcraft and say, like, originally they were going to be, like, you can build defenses and, like, can raid different territories belonging to the Horde or the Alliance. Mm -hmm. And, like, they just couldn't find a good way to make that work because of people aren't going to be on 24-7. And they don't necessarily want people on 24-7 because it's server load and all that other thing, all the other things. Right. But there's definitely some excitement about that aspect. I mean, Rust is not a good example because I, I just don't like Rust. But um, the thought of maybe something will happen to your base, you'll come back, you have to rebuild. Or, like, you right. find out that someone tried to attack your base and failed and maybe they leave something behind at that point for you. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's cool. I, I mean, I don't mind the aspect of like, Oh, we got attacked while I was away. We've got to patch up some defenses or whatever, but like starting over sucks. I mean, if like your thralls captured the people that were attacking you, you come back and they're all in like <laughs> in cages, like, Oh, trying to attack my base. Were you? <laughs> that would be cool if you could if your thralls could capture other people's thralls. Yeah, so I th that's something that they talked about was capturing other players. Um, they haven't found a good way to implement that because they want to make it fun for both parties, and just being dragged around by a rope is not fun for uh, the person <laughs> being captured. <laughs> right, right. Um, if Rain and King taught me anything, you, you keep a rock up your butt and you cut yourself, out and you just run. <laughs> <laughs> that's right reign of kings so that game was fun but it was riddled with hackers yeah so i'm hoping this game i hope this game escapes that because you know like so there's a like like i said i own an embarrassing number of survival games on steam what and and, and here's what i i kind of already said what i think is going to be unique about it like what do you like? Do you guys think because there's a bigger company behind this that I mean most early access games that are on Steam are kind of by 
companies where it's their first game, it's their only game, or it's some kind of fly-by-night company. You don't hear from them again. Or not company, but developer, rather. But I feel like Funcom is a big enough name that I feel like maybe there's enough pressure on them to not fuck this up, and it'll it'll be really good. I don't know. What do you guys think? That's what I'm thinking. But, like, for example, Daybreak, when H1Z1 came out, they had issues with Ugh. hackers. But... They've really put a strict policy on hack you know, on hacking, and they have been. Um, I mean, I haven't played it for a while, but from my understanding, they've been a good job of policing it and making sure that if there's a hacker and they get information on who the hacker is, they they, they ban them. So hopefully, Fun Funcom has a a a good way to figure yeah, like it a out. a good support system in place for when stuff like that inevitably happens. Yeah, a good reporting system. So you'd be like, boom, there's a hacker right there who just, he was just running through the sky with a bunch of thralls and now they're in my base. Yeah. Well, so the way that Funcom seems to have set up their servers, though, like, there's going to be official servers that Funcom has and they'll be able to police those, but then private servers, it's all going to be on the people who run those servers so yeah, that's you'll true. have to watch out who you let into your server that sort of thing um i don't know if they're going to be adding any sort of anti-cheat software into it or anything like that but um we'll see how it goes yeah we will see so i, I think we're all going to get it um anybody who's listening if anybody listens uh, you can check out, if you haven't heard of Conan Exiles, it's on Steam. I think it's going to come out for consoles later in this year. Uh, I think it retails at 30 And then uh, there's a Barbarian Edition that's actually normally like pre-orders or like bonus editions, or I always feel like they're a rip-off. Um, but this one, especially, you know, like being the you know, into the stuff that we're into, the Barbarian Edition comes with a copy of the Conan tabletop RPG that was kickstarted not that long ago. So you actually get the full tabletop RPG game with the computer game, and then you also get a t-shirt, some digital comics, in-game items for the Age of Conan MMO, and some other stuff. And it's 60 bucks, And that's really not bad, considering most $60 games you don't get any of that shit with. Like, a t-shirt, I mean, you pay 20 bucks for a t-shirt anywhere, so I don't know. That's if you want the t-shirt or if you want the tabletop role-playing game, but... I think it's a pretty. I think it's a pretty good bundle. With that kind of support, you need to find out if they'll pay for our podcast, man. <laughs> Come on, Funcom. <laughs> I'm gonna call up Funcom when we're done here. Uh, but I guess speaking of being done, we really want to stick uh, to no longer than 45 minutes when we do these shows, and we are approaching that. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up for this time. You guys got anything else you want to get out there? Anything you want to shout into the internet? I'm good. I'm good to go. All right, guys. Well, uh, we'll end it with a question. So anybody who listens, um, we had a different question prepared, but I think I think it was a it was a better question based on all we talked about uh, being new to RPGs, new GMs, new players, things like that. So, what do you guys think is the most cliche uh, RPG bad guy of all time? It could be a video game, tabletop game, doesn't matter. Let us know, and we'll talk to you guys next time. 